Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 is a first class maze and it's an expert level puzzle all rolled into one. But if you want to understand history, not just of the end times, but also world history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar onward, then deciphering Daniel is the key. And this is because while the secular world views history as, as, as a random, linear, non-repeating unfolding of human affairs, in reality, history is a divinely controlled, pattern-based, intimately overseen unfolding of God's plan of redemption. We're going to do our best to sort out the various symbols used in Daniel chapter 8. And we're going to see where and how and if they connect to the earlier visions that we studied in Daniel. So please be aware now that we're going to take Daniel as it comes. So indeed, as we eventually move through the following chapters, what we learn will be expanded upon as more information is given to us in the form of progressive revelation. Now, chapter 8 signals a return to a Jewish kingdom of God focus as the language of the document itself now shifts from the Gentile oriented Aramaic that began with chapter 2 and concluded at the end of chapter 7. So from here through the end of the book of Daniel the language of the text is now Hebrew. And in the remaining chapters of Daniel, we're going to get three additional visions or revelations that Daniel received while serving three different masters. The vision we'll momentarily read takes place while the Babylonian king Belshazzar is still Daniel's king. The next one will be after the Babylonian Empire falls and Darius the Mede is the new king. And then after that, Daniel receives a vision when Cyrus the king of Persia is in power. Now I'm sorry to say that about the only good and uplifting news to be had in this section is that there will come a time when the Ancient of Days, along with the Son of Man, will come to rescue oppressed Israel. And yet, as we wind our way through the maze of Daniel chapter 8, it becomes clear that this deliverance of Israel event isn't really connected to the problem of the exile in Babylon that the Jews are currently undergoing in Daniel's time because it was foretold that their Babylonian exile would only last 70 years and then come to a satisfactory end. And in fact, the Jews would even be treated quite well by their Babylonian captors. And history tells us that the Jews thrived in Babylon. In other words, there was no existential threat 
to the survival of the Jewish people as a result of their being conquered by the Babylonians and sent away to Babylon for a period of time. The primary catastrophe of the Babylonian exile lay in the loss of their homeland, Judah, and, of course, the loss of their priesthood and temple. Now they were stuck in Babylon without a means to atone for their sins, unable to keep kosher, unable to keep so many of God's ritual laws and appointed times and festivals as they were ordained in the Torah. However, the opposite will become the case at some later point, long after Daniel's time, as the extinction of the Jewish people and all those who joined them in spirit will become the aim of the final Gentile world empire. We got just a hint of this in chapter 7. But now, beginning in chapter 8, we are briefly told of a coming war of survival between the Hebrew people and some Gentile world rulers that will culminate in the rule of a single powerful ruler called the Little Horn whose goal seems to be to eliminate the very concept of biblical Jewishness and what we could rightly call a Hebrew roots theology including abolishing God's laws, His Sabbath, His appointed times, and bringing about oppression and genocide of the Hebrew people on an unheard of scale. And as we learn from Zechariah 14, this single powerful world ruler will be winning. He will be succeeding. And no doubt will have the full backing of the vast majority of the world's citizens and equally, equally without doubt the backing of the apostate portion of the institutional church who sees no future for Israel and the Jewish people. Without divine intervention to stop this final world leader who must be that little horn of Daniel chapter 7 he will achieve his goal. But then suddenly the Ancient of Days awakens at precisely the perfect preordained moment he comes. He leads his holy ones to victory. Daniel's little horn is destroyed and the everlasting kingdom of God is brought in to rule over the whole earth with Yeshua our Messiah as our king forever. Let's read Daniel chapter 8. Open your Bibles, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, to page 1110. 1110. Nice binary number for you. Daniel chapter 8. After that first vision, it was in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar that another vision appeared to me, Daniel. I looked into the vision, and as I looked, I found myself in Shushan, the capital in the province of Elam. And I looked into the vision, and I was by the Ulai Canal. And I looked up. And as I watched, there in front of the, uh, of the uh, stream stood a ram with two horns. 
The horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up later than the other. And I saw the ram pushing to the west and north and south, and no animals could stand up against it, nor was there anyone that could rescue from its power. So it did as it pleased. It became very strong. I was beginning to understand when a male goat came from the west, passing over the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a prominent horn between its eyes. It approached the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the river, and charged it with a savage force. I watched as it advanced on the ram, filled with rage against it, struck the ram, breaking its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. It threw the ram to the ground and trampled it down, and there was no one that could rescue it from the goat's power. The male goat then became extremely strong, but when it was strong, the big horn was broken. In its place arose what appeared to be four horns in the directions of the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew extremely big in the directions of the south and the east and in the direction of the glory. It grew so great that it reached the army of heaven and it hurled some of the army and the stars to the ground and trampled on them. Yes, it even considered itself as as great as the prince of the army. The regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of of his sanctuary was thrown down. Through sin, the army was put in its power along with the regular burnt offering. It flung truth on the ground and as it acted and as it prospered. And then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of the vision last? This vision concerning the regular offering and the transgression, which is so appalling that allows the sanctuary and the army to be trampled underfoot. The first said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings, after which the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. After I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was trying to understand it, suddenly there stood in front of me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from between the banks of the Ulai, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. He came up to where I was standing. His approach so terrified me I fell on my face. But he said to me, Human being, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. And as he was speaking with me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face towards the ground, but he touched me, set me on my feet, and and said, I'm going to explain to you what will happen at the end of the period of fury. Because the vision has to do with the time of the end. You saw a ram with two horns, which are the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat is the king of Greece. And the prominent horn between its eyes is the first king. As for the horn that broke and the four which rose up in its place, four kingdoms will arise out of this nation, but not with the power that the first king had. In the latter part of their reign, when the evildoers have become as as evil as possible, there will rise an arrogant king, skilled in intrigue. His power will be great, but not with the power the first king had. He will be amazingly destructive. He will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty and the holy ones. He will succeed through craftiness and deceit, become swelled with pride and destroy many people just when they feel the most secure. He will even challenge the prince of princes. But without human intervention, 
he will be broken. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. But you are to keep the vision secret because it's about days in the distant future. I, Daniel, grew weak. I was ill for some days. Then I got up and took care of the king's affairs, but I was appalled at the vision and still couldn't understand it. Verse 1 gives us the timing of this latest vision of Daniel. It's about two years after the first vision he received, the one that was presented back in chapter 7. So he had quite some time to contemplate and digest the best he could what that first vision might have meant. Daniel was probably close to 70 years old at this time. And the Hebrew word used here for vision is hazon. And while vision is not a wrong translation, recognize that in other places in English Bibles, hazon is translated as revelation. Now while we don't want to take the point too far, it seems as though this vision of Daniel was a little bit different in how it was transmitted to Daniel than that first one because the first one was said to be a dream and a vision which probably means that Daniel was in some kind of semi-conscious state, kind of half asleep. But here in chapter 8, it seems as though his experience in receiving this message from God might be more akin to what the New Testament John received and wrote down in a book that we call the book of Revelation, the book of Hazon. Revelation 1.1 says this, This is a revelation which God gave to Yeshua the Messiah so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon and he communicated it by sending his angel to his servant, Yochanan, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah as much as he saw. The second verse of Daniel 8 says that Daniel found himself in Shushan the capital of Elam, and there he was standing by the Ulai Canal. Now, Shusham is also known as Susa, and in modern times, in the Farsi language of Iran, as Shush. And archaeologists claim that it is a very ancient city that was first built about 4000 BC, and it remained occupied till around the time of the Crusades. And Shishan is called a, a citadel or a fortress, meaning that it was a walled city with excellent defenses and a most desirable and strategic location. Thus we find that when Persia conquered Babylon, they chose to make Shishan as their new capital city. And no doubt, since this vision of Daniel was prophetic, the reason that Daniel was taken to Shushan is because this place would soon become the seat of government for the second Gentile world empire, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. Now there's much debate in Judaism and in Christianity whether the words of this passage are meant to say that Daniel was actually physically in Shushan, visiting there. Uh, at the time of his revelation or that he was taken up there in the spirit so to speak that is 
Shushan was like a backdrop in a theatrical production to help Daniel understand and to, to visualize the meaning and the purpose of this revelation from God. And yet, interestingly, Daniel's tomb is located in Shushan. That's right, it's in Iran. Because many Jews believed that indeed he was there in person to receive this strange revelation. And in fact, he might have been a visitor to Shushan, maybe even more than once, as a visiting diplomat on behalf of Babylon. But the existence of a marked tomb doesn't necessarily mean anybody actually occupies it. For example, the famous cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, the cave of Machpelah, has marked tombs for Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Rebekah, and Leah. However, investigation has proved conclusively that none of those people occupy those tombs. In fact, no one's in them at all, at least not anymore. They are today more memorial than gravesite. And it's the same with the tomb of Daniel that's located in Shishan. Now the words of chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 seem straightforward enough to me and to most Bible scholars that Daniel was in Babylon at the time of his vision but that the setting of the vision was Shushan, the place that would become the capital city of the second world empire. The one depicted in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as the silver chest and arms of his dream statue and in Daniel's first vision as that second beast who was like a bear. And this symbolism is used now to give us additional information and that symbolism is of a ram with two horns. Now the use of the ram was not intended to replace or to update the use of the bear as the symbolic symbol of the second world empire. Rather it was that in Daniel's first vision the bear had certain attributes that well described Media Persia. But here in the second vision, a ram is used because the ram was the commonly recognized form of Persia's guardian spirit. In fact, in the uh, Zendavesta, the holy book of the religion found by Zoroaster around a thousand years before Daniel's day, it is said that the god Ized Bayram appeared like a ram with cloven feet and sharp pointed horns. The religion that Zoroaster created began in the area that became Persia and now is modern day Iran. In time this ram god became known as Ares in the zodiac whose symbol to this day is the ram. Thus, most folks in Daniel's era recognized the connection between Persia, the ram, and the city of Shushan. It would be like folks the world over today recognizing the connection between the USA, the Eagle, and Washington, D.C. So there wasn't much mystery for Daniel regarding the identity of the ram as Persia. 
But notice that there is one ram with two horns. And remember that a horn is biblically symbolic of a kingdom and or of a king. So we have one creature, a ram, that carries two kings or kingdoms, two horns, on its head. Both horns were long. That means they both had substantial power. However, one was even longer than the other one. One had incrementally more power than the other one. And the longer one, the more powerful one, showed its superiority a little bit later. And this ram with two horns fits wonderfully with the symbolism of the two arms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue that are connected at the chest. Obviously, this is representative of the combined empire consisting of the two kingdoms of the Medes and of the Persians. And historically, we find that while at first the Medes were given the honor of providing the king over the former Babylonian empire, that was King Darius, soon the more powerful Persians replaced him with a Persian king, King Cyrus. Nonetheless, the two kingdoms remained fully allied. Now, as Daniel watched this ram, the spiritual symbol of Persia, it forcefully pushed its way to the west, north, and south. And no animals, it is said, could stand up against it. The idea is that the media... Persian Empire would expand itself towards the west, the north, and the south, but not to the east. Every Gentile nation had gods and protective spirits that were worshipped as in the form of an animal of some sort. So the idea of saying that no animal could stand against the ram means that the god of Persia, the ram, was victorious over the gods of these other kings, kingdoms and nations represented by other animals. And when we look back in history, oh, we see just how accurate this prophecy was. To the west, Media Persia conquered Babylon, Syria, and much of Asia Minor. To the north, they conquered Armenia and the region around the Caspian Sea that is sometimes called Scythia. And to the south, their major conquests were Egypt and Ethiopia, but they also, of course, took over the former holy lands of the Hebrews because that was part of the Babylonian Empire that they had just acquired. They tried to make gains to the east, but generally they were either repulsed or their gains were or minor or they were unable to hold on to what they won for very long. But let's also notice something else. The beast symbol in Daniel's first vision for Media Persia was the bear. And if you'll recall, that bear carried three ribs in its mouth. The symbolism of those three ribs is now revealed to us, whereas before we had to speculate. The three bones are symbolic of Media Persia's successful conquests to three of the four compass directions, the west, the north, and the south, but not to the east. Otherwise, there would have been four rib bones in the bear's mouth. Next, in verse 5, Daniel says he was beginning to understand. 
That is, the symbolism of the revelation was, was pretty clear to him. And that was at least partly because the geopolitical situation at this time of his vision matched with what the vision says the outcome would be. <clears throat> the timing of this vision was just a matter of months, maybe even weeks, before Media Persia attacked and overran Babylon, effectively taking their empire away from them. Media Persia had been conquering and, and expanding into other areas, and it seemed like only a matter of time before they finally targeted the big prize, Babylon. But then something that Daniel didn't understand was revealed. A male goat appeared from the direction of the west, and it began passing over the earth without touching the ground. In other words, it was conquering at a startling rate. And seas and mountains and rivers were no obstacle for him. Let's connect the goat now with Daniel's first vision. The third beast, after Babylon and then Media Persia, the lion and the bear, that third beast was symbolized by a four-headed leopard that had bird's wings. Not just the standard two bird's wings, but four. So man, this beast could really fly high and fast. Thus the idea is that the wings enabled this third beast, who's now spoken of as a he-goat, male goat, to soar over the land, extend its range and influence at lightning speed. And the main feature of this powerful goat from the west was a single large horn on its forehead, located between its eyes. A horn now, meaning a king or a kingdom. And it charged that ram with such violence that the ram couldn't withstand it. And the vision showed the ram standing in front of the Ulai Canal that ran by the Persian capital city of Shushan. So the ram is once again firmly connected to the Persians and to, the, and to Shushan and we have the empire of the ram clearly affirmed as the Median Persian Empire and the empire of the goat, however, was defeating it. Now the two horns on the ram, the two kings with their kingdoms, Media and Persia, were broken by the ferocity of this goat, thus symbolizing the ram's defeat. Now I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, because what I'm going to tell you is said in just a few more verses, but the he-goat is identified for us as Greece, or more technically, Macedonia, Greece. And therefore, the single powerful big horn on the goat is none other than the incomparable conqueror Alexander the Great. But then verse 8 explains that something unexpected happened to that big horn on the goat. It was broken. It was destroyed. And in its place arose four more horns that spread out to the four compass directions. And history matches this symbolism perfectly. In June of 323 B.C., at the height of his power, Alexander the Great died in his bed a month shy of his 33rd birthday. 
The reasons are not given for his demise except that he had a high fever, chills, was very weak and had been in bed for about 10 days. Some think he was poisoned. But more and more modern forensic doctors who consider the symptoms think that it was not treachery but rather some type of infectious disease like typhoid fever which was rampant at that time. Well, the great horn upon the he-goat is now dead. But the he-goat itself, the Greek Empire, was alive and well. Very powerful. Alexander had not named a successor. Who was going to name a successor when you're 32 years old? And so naturally, the jockeying for position as the heir to this empire began immediately upon his untimely death. Well, since this was a highly militarized society, it was the generals who would, of course, succeed in ruling. And without going into great detail, it was decided that four generals would run the empire. And the empire would be divided into four districts, with each district being run by one of these generals. This was not a carving up of the empire into separate independent kingdoms. Rather, it was simply a division of duties. However, unlike in the military, when multiple generals were given certain areas of authority, but each of them still reported to the king, there would be no single higher authority above these four generals. Thus, the Greek government became a system known as the Diadochi, which simply means successors. And as one can imagine, there were wars, and there were assassinations, and there was high political intrigue among these Diadochi, and others who were not, to, not included in this administration of the empire, but they thought they ought to be. But soon, four men rose to the top, they consolidated their power, and they established their rulership. Macedonia was placed under Cassander. Thrace in Asia Minor was ruled by Lysimachus. Syria by Seleucus. And Egypt, along with most of the Holy Lands, by Ptolemy. Now technically, there were originally five Diodoci rulers in districts. But the fifth ruler, a fellow named Antigonus, was quickly overthrown. And so for all practical purposes, there was ever only four. <clears throat> well... So far, so good with Daniel chapter 8. The interpretation of Daniel's revelation is pretty straightforward. Media Persia is the ram with two long horns who overthrows Babylon. Greece is the he-goat with the one large horn that destroys the ram, who is Media Persia. The second world empire conquers the first. The second then is destroyed by the third. And the third is Greece. But now we come to verse 9. And here's where things get a little bit challenging. <clears throat> Here we're told <clears throat> that from one of those horns, four horns, that arose on the he-goat, came another smaller one. And part of the difficulty is that some theologians insist that this smaller horn on the he-goat must be the same as the Daniel chapter 7 little horn that grows on the fourth beast. Is it? I don't see how. 
But here's the reason and the agenda of those theologians who insist that the little horns of chapter 7 and 8 are the same. Because if that's so, then the fourth kingdom, I'm sorry, had already come by the time that their fake Daniel had written his fake prophecies. Therefore, the fourth kingdom could not possibly be Rome. Rather, the fourth kingdom had to be Greece and the little horn Antiochus Epiphanes. That is, the first kingdom was Babylon, in their view. The second was Media. The third kingdom was Persia. The fourth kingdom, Greece. However, as I've said in earlier lessons, history doesn't know anything about an empire of the Medes. It's a contrived empire of Bible theologians who need it in order for their doctrines to work out. No empire of the Medes, their whole doctrine's blown. But there are more reasons why this Greece is the fourth empire doesn't work and why the little horn from Daniel 7 and the small horn from Daniel 8 cannot possibly be the same person. First, the little horn from Daniel 7 emphatically comes from the fourth Gentile world empire. The little horn from Daniel 8 comes from the third Gentile world empire and is well associated with the third beast imagery from Daniel's first vision. Second of all, the little horn from Daniel 7 is said to have sprouted from ten other horns and it displaced three of them. The little horn from Daniel 8 comes from one of the four horns and it replaces it, but not the other three. But in fairness, language scholars agree that the wording of this passage is very difficult and what is being conveyed is not entirely clear. What it seems to be communicating is that out of one of those four horns, a ruler of little power arose, but eventually he was able to grow into a position of great power. And the district of the Greek empire that he would control is said to be to the south and to the east and to, and this is where we arrive at yet another sticking point, Depending on your English Bible translation, it might say that the third direction of his control was to your desire, to the glory, to the pleasant land, to the beautiful land, to the land of splendor, or one of a few more terms. These English terms are all attempting to translate the Hebrew phrase ha-tzep-vi. And we find this exact Hebrew term used in Ezekiel 20, Jeremiah 3, and Daniel 11. And regardless of the exact English words that we'll find in our various Bibles, the idea is always that it's referring to the Holy Lands. This small horn ruler that grew great will have the Holy Lands as part of his district. But then verse 10 is even more problematic because it says that this ruler becomes so strong he's going to reach up to the heavens 
and he's going to hurl some of the army and the host of heaven and the stars to the ground and trample upon them. He will not attempt to. He will succeed in doing it. What's this referring to? I mean, can this ruler who reaches up to the heavens and is, and, and is able to throw down the heavenly hosts, can this be a human being? Or are we speaking of a spiritual being? Probably the evil one, Satan. I mean, after all, how could a mortal man, no matter how powerful, reach up to heaven and throw angels down to the earth? Let's look at this briefly, and I think the explanation is not as difficult as it might seem. Let's frame this issue by drawing on our principle of the reality of duality. That is, the earth and its inhabitants, us, are generally a physical counterpart of the structure and the hierarchy of heaven and of its spiritual inhabitants. Further, physical events that happen on earth usually have their spiritual heavenly parallels. So the hosts of heaven are on the one side of the reality of duality and they are God's angels, God's heavenly army. They are God's set apart spiritual beings created to serve Him. On earth, the Lord created national Israel. He set them apart as human beings to serve Him. Thus we have a parallel between the spiritual and the physical. So God is the God of hosts of heaven in the sense of the hosts as being spiritual beings and He is the God of the host of heaven in the sense of the physical beings whose allegiance is to God in heaven and whose natural home is heaven and whose purpose on earth Our purpose on earth is the same as the purpose of the angels in heaven, to serve God. And by the way, this is something Christians have claimed correctly since time immemorial. It's not a new principle. It's clear from the context of the vision that the person that the smaller horn represents is a real actual human being not an evil spirit not an angel and in some ways he's not unlike Nimrod who felt himself so great that lording over humans wasn't enough so he had a tall tower built a ziggurat upon which he climbed to the top because he felt it put him nearer to God and he shook his fist in disrespect at the heavens and challenged God to stand against him. That is the same sense that we get here in verse 10 that this smaller horn ruler will feel powerful enough to even challenge God. But the other reason to believe that these particular hosts of heaven are humans and not angels is that starting in verse 15 we have the angel Gabriel explaining the meaning of Daniel's vision to him. And when we get to verse 24, Gabriel says that the smaller horn will succeed in whatever he does and that he will destroy the mighty and the holy ones. 
in verses 23 and 24 of the 8th chapter of Daniel says this, In the latter part of their reign, the reign of the four horns, when the evildoers have become as evil as possible, there will arise an arrogant king, the small horn, skilled in intrigue. His power will be great, but not with the power of the first king, Alexander the Great. And he will be amazingly destructive. He will succeed in whatever he does. And he will destroy the mighty and the holy ones. So while I can't be 100% certain, it sure seems to me that the mighty and the holy ones of verse 24 are Gabriel's explanation. For in Daniel's vision, what those hosts of heaven and the stars in verse 10 mean. And therefore, this is indicating Israelites and Israel's leadership. Verse 11 goes further. Here that small horn directly challenges the prince of the heavenly host. This now corresponds with Gabriel's explanation of that in verse 25 where he says he will succeed through craftiness and deceit, become swelled with pride, destroy many people just when they feel the most secure. He will even challenge the prince of princes, but without human intervention he'll be broken. The prince of princes is the prince of the heavenly hosts, and that can't be anybody else other than God. But how does the small horn challenge God? What does he mean he challenges God? Daniel 8.11 The regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. That's how he challenged him. So the little horn is going to invade the sanctuary of God, the temple, and he's going to bring a halt to the offering of sacrifices to Jehovah. Question, was there a temple at this time? No. They were up in Babylon. There wouldn't be a temple for quite a while yet. So this is obviously the future. And this can't be a heavenly event. It's impossible that either an earthly or a spiritual being could, could succeed in invading God's heavenly temple and stopping whatever the heavenly version of a sacrifice is. Thus, this is more proof that all that is being described concerning the stars and the hosts of heaven and of the small horn and of the sanctuary and its sacrifices is happening physically. On earth and mortal human beings are both the culprits and the victims. Now, who is this small horn of the third kingdom of Greece? Go ahead and put your Bibles down now. I want you to listen to a section out of the first out of the book of First Maccabees. A book that's not part of the Protestant Bible canon, but it is true and it's reliable. Listen to this, starting at verse 7. And after Alexander had reigned for twelve years, he died, and then his officers began to rule, each in his own place. 
They all put on crowns after his death, and so did their descendants after them for many years, and they caused many evils on the earth. And from them came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. He had been a hostage in Rome, and he began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misled many, saying, Let's go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. Since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. And this proposal pleased them. And some of the people eagerly went to the king, who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to Gentile custom, and they removed the marks of circumcision, and they abandoned the Holy Covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. And when Antiochus saw that his kingdom was established, he determined to become king of the land of Egypt in order that he might reign over both kingdoms. So he invaded Egypt with a strong force, with chariots and elephants and cavalry and with a large fleet, and he engaged King Ptolemy of Egypt in battle. And Ptolemy turned and fled before him, and many were wounded and fell. They captured the fortified cities in the land of Egypt, and he plundered the land of Egypt. And after subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned in the 143rd year, and he went up against Israel, and he came to Jerusalem with a strong force. And he arrogantly entered the sanctuary and he took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all of its utensils. He also took the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold, all the costly vessels. He also took also the hidden treasures that he found. Taking them all, he went into his own land and he shed much blood and he spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young women and young men became faint. The beauty of the women faded. Every bridegroom took up the lament. She who sat in the bridal chamber was mourning. Even the land trembled for its inhabitants, and all the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. Two years later, the king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute, and he came to Jerusalem with a large force. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them. They believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, he burned it with fire, he tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. They took captive the women and the children, they seized the livestock, then they fortified the city of David with a great strong wall and strong towers, and it became their citadel. They stationed there sinful people, men who were renegades. They strengthened their position. They stored up arms and food, collecting the spoils of Jerusalem. They stored them, stored them there. They became a great menace because the citadel became an ambush against the sanctuary, an evil adversary of Israel at all times. And on every side of the sanctuary they shed innocent blood. They even defiled the sanctuary. Because of them... 
the residents of Jerusalem fled. She became a dwelling for strangers. She became strange to her offspring and her children forsook her. Her sanctuary became desolate like a desert. Her feasts were turned into mourning. Her Sabbaths were turned into a reproach. Her honor into contempt. Her dishonor now uh, now grew as great as her glory. Her exaltation turned into mourning. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people. They should all give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the commandment of the king. Many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols. They profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and to the towns of Judah. And he directed them to follow customs that were strange to the land, to forbid the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbaths and the festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice wine, other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law, that they would change all of their ordinances. And he added, whoever does not obey the commandment of the king shall die. small horn turned out to be Antiochus Epiphanes. But there's a lot more to this story. And we'll talk about it some more next time.